But you're drunk right now. I can see it. I'm not drunk. Honey, you're slurring your speech. <laughs> I've been around you drunk enough to know. Uh, I'm not slurring my speech. Yep. Hi, welcome to Outrageous, our bi-weekly podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris, I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friend, Trisha in LA. Hello! Hello! How are you? I'm good. <laughs> so listeners, uh, one of us may have had, had a drink. End of story. You will have to figure out who it was. <laughs> <laughs> how, how are you? What's new? What's new? <laughs> What's new is actually um, I got a chance to see uh, one of our shared friends um, mm-hmm. this past week. Alonzo's in town. Oh, that's right. Our friend Alonzo, who is a bon vivant. <laughs> <laughs> he was great. He had a great event um, that mm-hmm. got me actually out of the house Talk to about go listen event. to live music, actually. Hi, you know what? I don't like live music. <gasps> I know. I know. I said it out loud. You know what? Okay, wait. Let me let me let me just clarify this. If you go to see live music, right? And I'm gonna show my age. Usually it's just a little too loud for me. Okay. <laughs> well, you know what, actually, um, <laughs> to be honest, um, it was it, it was a great space. Yeah. And it was actually it was a Cuban band. Okay. Um, and so um, which, but you know what? It was actually really great because it was a there was a band, but then uh, full, pretty much like maybe sixteen piece, um, oh, wow. and then also video in the back, so all my senses could um, be We're activated. Engaged. But and so my friend was like, "Oh, do you want to go up front?" I'm like, "Ah, eh, I'm okay. I'm like in the back." You know what I mean? And that was just right for me. I didn't want to get all up in the thick of it, so I had this like space to enjoy the music. And then look at the screen. It was just right. And then a couple of them wanted to go forward. I'm like, you go on up in there. So yeah, I didn't yeah, have yeah. that noise issue because I think I was I think I was experiencing the same thing as well. Which is why when someone says, "Oh, what's your last concert?" Which you know I don't go to concerts because I no, don't really. Honey, you barely like music. Oh, it's so bad. I don't know where that comes from. But um, when I do engage it, I want singer songwriter, which means I want it completely mellow, like, totally I chill, totally chill. That's, That's what I mean. Is- like honestly, like when I saw Madonna and Lady Gaga, I love them. I thought they they were I mean they're incredible performers. You know, I would have been fine just sitting down like my legs crossed just watching it. Like why do I have to be up? Like, <laughs> oh my god. Am I, am I showing my age? Uh, why do I have to be up and dancing like I I don't know. I saw Lady Gaga and the show was like 95 100 minutes long and I thought she's great. And she knows that I appreciate her because I give her money. So I don't know why I have to be jumping up and down, like in the 400 section where she can't see me anyway. Like, I just want to sit and be like, everyone sit down. Sit down. Oh, so God, you, you see. know what? I'm going to let you know right now. You were too uh-huh. old. Do I sound old? No. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you right now. As no, you were but, describing it, I was like, wow, you just sound old. <laughs> no, the one other thing I want to say about live music is that the worst is like when you're in a restaurant you're eating dinner or you're having drinks with friends and then the live band wants to start. I don't know how it is in LA, but there is, there is exactly, exactly zero spaces in New York 
where it is appropriate while people are eating or drinking or socializing for a live band to be playing. Like, okay, I'm old, perhaps, but I'll tell you, it's like you got to shout over the music. Yeah, yeah. It's just someone shouting over you as you're shouting to your friend. It just seems really aggressive and uncomfortable. It's It's just a bar. It should never be like a Mm -hmm. sit-down meal. Like, no, it's the worst. Yeah. That's Mm -hmm. why maybe like a a light piano playing in the background is probably why people decided to do that. Or like a mellow, again, a mellow crooner in the side. Or like a a jazz trio. Oh, yeah, that too. But no drums, no drums. You know what? There is no indoor space where drums are appropriate outside of an arena. Like they're just, they're they're fucking drums. They're drums. Stop it. Well, like maybe like a, in this, any space that replicates a kind of arena where it's big enough, maybe the ceilings are high enough, nothing enclosed, nothing enclosed where it's like barish. Cause then you're just like, Oh my God, I'm dying. Which basically this entire conversation makes us feel like we are 60, 70, 80. Oh my Uh, God. So uh, well, <laughs> I'm just letting you know that. I'm going to own it. Yeah. Uh, no drums inside. Turn down the music. <laughs> and you kids better get the hell off my lawn. End of story. There you go. Those two things are what I'm about. Okay. <laughs> I want to talk about this because I saw this and I was reminded of our mutual dear old friend of the podcast. But did you see that Betsy DeVos, Secretary of Education? <laughs> yes. so betsy devos secretary of education gave the commencement speech at an historically black college uh bethune i can't remember the name of it oh my god but she gave the commencement speech and the graduates were not having it whatsoever they booed her they turned their back to her yeah Um, it was it was bethune cookman that was yep. the school. And you know what? I applaud those students. I mm-hmm. applaud them. Because- oh, I'm happy. You know what? That's an interesting question because I've I've heard mixed mixed comments well, about that. You applaud them, right? I applaud them. And let me tell you why. First of all, the bullshit that she was spouting, like, I hope that we can listen to each other's points of view with respect. And it's like the only you're demanding respect because you know you're so damn disrespectable. Like yeah. you, you want to go in there? The White House is waffling about uh, funding to HBCUs, uh, right? You know, DeVos herself is really big on deregulating uh, student loans. Mm-hmm. And like, who the fuck do you think is going to take those student loans? Like these kids, these kids and their younger siblings who need to go to school. So, like, why on earth should they listen to you? They've listened to you, and you have been telling us that we're trash. So, uh, Bessie DeVos, fuck you, and. I don't appreciate you being at my commencement. I applaud them. I thought that was the appropriate response because, I mean, it needs to be said a hundred odd days in, this is not normal. None of this is normal. So the rules do not apply. And like this woman, the fact that she's giving the commencement speech at at an institute of education is embarrassing. Sorry. You know, you've been saying, everybody's been saying it's not normal. It's not normal. And I think- what's not normal is the obviousness of all of their actions. On some level, this is just business as usual for them, which is why I think many people feel so comfortable doing what they're doing. I think they've always done a really good job, though, of putting a a good public face on. But Mm. many of their policies, many of their agenda items have been in the direction of a DeVos, 
they've just mm. we've just never had anyone say it out loud. Like we're going to set up institutions so that you can continue f- to fail, so that yeah. we can continue to um to not um serve you. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like that's that's just what's more. That's what they've been doing. So no, I've I've seen a couple comments about how the students were disrespectful. And I was like, no. why is protest disrespectful? No. These people, this woman does not care about the existence no. of anyone no. in the room. She doesn't, she doesn't she care doesn't. about the institution she's at. You know what I'm saying? She doesn't care about the financial well-being of nope. these students or the students who are going to come behind them at these colleges. Like, this is the thing that I don't understand. And and this is a this is the thing that everyone's discussing now. Conversation isn't always a two-way street. Yeah. You don't, I don't get to respect you. You know, everything doesn't have another side. So if I say, you know, I think black people should not be gunned down by the police, you don't <laughs> get to say, you don't get to say, well, hear me out and respect <laughs> me when I say the opposite. No, you don't. You've given that up, right? Your views are reprehensible. And when it comes to Betsy DeVos and the ideas that she has about higher education, it's laughable that she would even be in the room. And the thing that I can't understand is why she was invited in the first place. I've heard rumors in some ways, because, you know, it's the same issue because this week Trump floated the idea, or maybe it was last week, that, you know, that maybe government funding of um, historically Black universities and colleges, colleges and universities, it might be unconstitutional, which, by the way, I don't even think Trump cares about the Constitution. So he was just floating it out there just to be racist, say something horrible. And then someone said, well, so so much for that photo op from all those HBCUs who showed up. Then somebody responded by saying, you know, um, they were kind of threatened with withdrawal of funding if they didn't show up. Yeah, I heard that too. So I, so I think the same thing is probably at place here, which is like they're probably, listen, this is this is that institution trying to survive. Like, I, well, I mean, listen, you know, that's I saw probably the what they were doing. So, I saw with an interview with the president on Vice. I think it was the president, someone at the school. And there was no shame in his game. He's like, look, the name of this game is that we have got to make friends because friends bring money. Yep. And then that was a statement. I was like, damn. Yeah, I mean, and I I think I understood it. Like, I think, you know, I, I wasn't appalled that she was there. I was happy that the students had a strong enough reaction so that we understand why she didn't belong there. But I didn't blame the university because on some level, I really believe that they felt they had to do that to survive because I thought, you know, maybe there's going to be a donation, maybe, a, maybe not explicitly from her, but she's got a very wealthy family. She's got lots of things named okay, after her. But you know so, what, you know, you know what though, Trisha, some things are worth the risk. Let me refer you to the seminal piece of art. <laughs> um, the first Avengers movie. Now, <laughs> when Loki arrives in Germany and he commands a group of humans to bow down before him. This old white man stands up and he goes, too many people have bowed before men like you. And Loki goes to kill him, but then Captain America shows up and the rest of the movie happens. Some things are worth that stand, like putting yourself on the line. I heard Evan McMullen speak uh, on another podcast lately, and he had said something about that. Like a lot of people in the house are, they're, they're worried about losing their seat if they speak out against Trump or do X, Y, and Z. And he said, Evan McMillan said that some things are worth losing your seat over. And I believe that. And I'll tell you something. I understand the money argument, but like 
if this is the kind of bedfellows HBCUs have to make to continue going the way that they have been, I think given the, the given the the history of those organizations and like the strong moral stances they've taken, I think this would just be another stance to take. It, it, you know, I mean, you know, I'm in development. I'm in development. I'm in money, and I checks have to be cut. I mean, this this is you're right. I mean, damn Trisha. It's hard to say this because, you know, if you think about it, how many other, um, how many graduates are going to be allowed to go through that school if somebody writes a very big check? Because the question becomes, are the graduates able to make enough money out in the world so they can give back to the school? A lot of these schools depend on alumni funding and alumni um, giving money back. And you have to ask yourself, are their graduates um, doing well enough in the marketplace so that if if we don't have um, whites or we don't have educational um, spaces or, you know, if we don't have the government participating, will that school be able to thrive? And I don't know. I, I really don't know. And I, I totally well, get your point. I totally I get your point. They, but they, what, they the, the school closes? I, I, you know what? It might be worth it. It might be what? worth it. And no, listen, let me tell you something. It might be worth it because the edu- what, what you're asking those students and that organization to do to get into bed with people like Betsy DeVos who want to dismantle organizations like that. Like you and I have had this discussion on the podcast about working with monsters. Like they have to be rejected completely and there will be consequences for that. But there is no way you can take something negative and turn it into a positive. The negative is trying to eat away at you. That's its entire function and focus. So, okay. I will be okay with doing that if I can obviously say this. If I can say we were asked to invite Betsy DeVos to our graduation and $300,000 of support was contingent on her coming. We thought that we should turn her down and we have turned her down. Mm-hmm. But now we need you all to step up. If that kind of situation is made possible, I'm okay fine. with that. I'm fine. I'm fine with that. You know what I mean? That's what you have to do. When you you make hard choices, moral choices, people Mm -hmm. also have to understand that there are going to be monetary consequences. So if I can make a pitch for that and the public responds well to that, I'm okay with that. Because that's the point. The point is, you know what? Sometimes we make these moral choices and then our kids suffer for it. Mm -hmm. No food on the table, da-da-da-da. I mean, sometimes survival is the name of the game. But you're right. Survival at what cost? You've got to make that decision. Screw Betsy DeVos. Um, <laughs> sorry, former friends of the podcast. I mean, current friends of the podcast who, well, never mind. You know what we're saying. I think she's terrible. And congratulations to those graduates. Good luck with everything you're doing. So let's jump into just a couple of topics. Mm-hmm. I want to start with yours, Trisha. You want mm-hmm. to talk about travel. So let me give a context. I have been struggling with creativity, feeling as if I am able to think new thoughts, do new things, feel different feelings, because I'm so overwhelmed by Trump's presidency. Mm -hmm. I'm operating at an anxiety level that is way too high. I feel like I have to be hyper vigilant about every single news item. And realistically, my brain can't process everything. Right, It just can't. Mm -hmm. And so I started to wonder, 
how could I, how can I get back to a space where not all of my brain is being utilized to survive this presidency? Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> it sounds so dramatic, but I know of what you speak. Go ahead. <laughs> um, and, and then I started to think about travel. Mm-hmm. Because I remember travel being something organically transformative on some level. It's mm-hmm. quick. Like it's a quick fix, right? You want mm-hmm. a change of location is a quick way of changing jolting your perspective, yourself. jolting yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And so then I started um and then I started to think about you and I know that you for a long time you chose not to travel and then you mm-hmm. then you started. And so I started to wonder. I was like, "Oh, I wonder what was sort of the the reason why travel suddenly seemed like a good idea to you. And then mm-hmm. also what happened while you were traveling, like what parts of yourself you felt were uncovered. Cause I, I wondered if maybe travel would be another way to awaken another part of myself again, you know, like to get myself out of this Trump slump. <laughs> Trump slump. Oh, yes. Trump slump TM rights reserved. See in a circle. Congratulations. The yes. Trump slump. <laughs> Trump slump. So then, so then the question then sort of boiled down into can travel serve as a coping mechanism for us during Trump's presidency? Can it do what it used to do? We've talked about travel uh, in more specific senses on this podcast, but I guess your question you're asking is a little bit more general. Yes, there was a time where I refused to leave New York City. I was like, New York City has everything I need. Why would I leave? You know, and looking back on that, Chris, now I'm like, I don't know what was going on there. I think it was a lot of rigidity. I think it was a lot of fear of change, fear of being uncomfortable. You know, I enjoy my comforts. (gasps) Oh my God, do I enjoy comfort. Listeners, let me tell you. Oh my God, comfort is my like go-to. And, but I think for me, it's that my world got small and I just needed to be uncomfortable just to sort of jolt myself. Like I needed, Mm -hmm. I needed to be woken up. Like I need to be not woken up so much as much as sort of like, I need to be shocked. I need Mm -hmm. to be, I needed to be disheveled. I needed to be, you know, sort of put in a bit of a disarray just to, cause it's, it's helpful to find out who you are by having a little bit of chaos into your life. Because the way that you order that, I think, um, says a lot about you. And it shows you what your tendencies are at a much faster rate than if you were going to sit around navel-gazing about it. And that's what travel did for me. Like I, The way that I travel is that I pick a place that I want to go. I buy the plane ticket. I make very few plans about what I'm going to do. And when I get off the plane, it's just straight up amazing race style. Like Really? Yep straight up amazing race style. How do I get to the city center? Once I'm in the city center, where am I going to stay? Where do I go? Like, you know, and, and I don't, I do my best not to ask anybody. I try and figure it out on my own. Um, and I do that to myself because it really does jolt me. I think in this particular time, I think it'd be helpful for people to travel if only, not if only, because I think and I've always said this about Americans, right? You have to understand how America is perceived outside the world, and you have to get a sense of your own Americanness, which I think is lost to us here because it's the only culture we're introduced to. And I think in this time, particularly, 
understanding how different America can be from the rest of the world is a uh, really useful travel. I think it was super useful for me, but in this time and, and day, totally. But what about, what about the psychic value aside from sort of like the, the sort of socially valuable elements that understanding Americanness and all of that. What about personally? Like, cause that's really what I'm struggling with is what, how do I need to shift mentally, psychically to come to a different, to, to turn a corner on some level? Like, do you think that that, do, do you, did you find that travel did that for you? Like, did, did it shift you where you felt like I'm, I'm sort of becoming a little different? I, I feel like every experience does that to me. I mean, new ones anyway. I don't know if I've been, I don't know if I'm any different. I think, I think I appreciate everything I have more. Mm. You know, whenever I travel and I'm seeing something incredible, I'm mm-hmm. always super moved just because my parents grew up poor on a small Caribbean island. And here I am underneath the Eiffel Tower. Here I am, like, you know, uh, watching this beautiful sunset on this gorgeous island. Here I am, like, wandering the streets of Amsterdam at 4 a.m. Like, it's, I'm always so moved by how grateful I am and how um, lucky I've been. Uh, Other than that, I don't know if it shifted my thinking other than the American piece of it, like, feeling American. And understanding Americanness is such a it's such a big thing for me. Mm. You know, well, you know like, that was my. What about you though? Because I you were on the travel bit way before me, and you were just running all over the world like you were goddamn Carmen Sandiego, <laughs> and you were trying to get away from these kid investigators. So what were you? What were you you know what? I think I think I just wanted to take more risks. Mm-hmm. I wanted to um, jolt myself out of a kind of mental space that I'd gotten trapped in where I was, I just felt like I was, I was being too cautious and I didn't know if um, I didn't know if I could change radically change my life in, in the world that I was living in. Like I couldn't radically change my job or something like that. So I thought maybe travel was going to be the space mm-hmm. where I could, um, become somebody different. Um, And in some ways, it wasn't that I became somebody different. I think what happened was I sort of unmasked myself unwillingly. Like I, I, I I got lost a lot of times and I would just like break down in space. And I'm like, why am I here? Why am I on this trip? What what am I doing? You know what I mean? But I mean, I feel like travel can give you the space to do that because you automatically know that you've put placed yourself in in a space where you don't know. But sometimes I think when you live in your life, you feel like you should have a handle on your life. Mm-hmm. So you feel like you don't have permission to sort of fall apart. But if under the guise of travel, you give yourself permission to fall apart, suddenly you might be raging at something, but then you're raging at something that's maybe quite central to your character. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I always felt like anytime I had a meltdown on my travel, it was actually um, about larger things, about larger parts of my personality that I just felt like I needed to confront and travel did that. 
So I think because I had that experience, I started thinking through this Trumpian moment and I was like, do I need to shock myself into having a different perspective? Do I need to shift focus in some way so I can get a handle? I think a need is strong. I think, I I can't speak for you, but I think for Mm -hmm. me that my desire is this whole Trump slump that we're in. Yeah. Like I want to be out of it. Yeah. Being out of it means being out of the country. I don't know though, because I haven't been out of the country. Yes. That's true. Have I? I don't think I mean, so. I haven't been, I haven't been too far. Like yeah. I've been to the Caribbean, but I haven't been like really someplace truly foreign for a long period of time. Uh, so I don't know what's happening overseas as far as Trump and, and his impact on the world. And, you know, we talked about this last podcast is that there's a lot of shady shit going all over the world, um, except for France. Congratulations, France. Um, Although but, somebody said they're just delaying the inevitable, which I thought was an interesting take. Well, I mean, I mean, the person who said that is a dick. Come on, <laughs> what kind of thing is that to say? What I mean, like, <laughs> well, but I mean, listen. The point you know saying- what? That's like the person who, like, at the wedding toast, leans over to you and says, "This isn't going to last." Shut the fuck up. Can you give us a moment? Can you wait till after the honeymoon? <laughs> And also, and I'll be honest, I'll be honest, I think part of it too is a little bit of an escape. But I remember, actually, I traveled immediately after the election, and I couldn't escape it. I I mean, I was in London. So people kept asking me about the election, they kept trying to have me reflect back on America. So I could never actually get out of it. I could never actually fully escape. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if there's an escape. Maybe there isn't. You know, maybe travel isn't the thing. Like, I, exactly. I feel like travel opens up your horizons. Uh, I think it. I think it can make someone look. You know what? Every person I meet, I'm saying, I always tell them, like, buy a plane ticket, leave the country. Then the excuses begin immediately, and the same excuses I had. It's too expensive. I'm not going to get the time off from work. Da, 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 da. And I was like, if you could save up fifteen hundred dollars, which is a lot of money to a lot of people, sure. right? But $1,500 would give you actually a boss long weekend like in Europe, like somewhere somewhere you're going to have the experience of a lifetime. It doesn't have to be $1,500. It could be 1000 really. And like I said, that could be a lot of money for some people. You might spend – wait, you might have to save up all year to do that. Yeah. But then think about that. You saved up for a year. You saved up $80 a month for a year and you get to go have this experience that's going to last four or five days – unlike anything that you could have imagined. So I always tell everyone, friends, family, random Uber drivers, that they need (laughs) to go and buy a ticket because I think it does absolutely shift your perspective. I think in connection to this current moment, I think, you know, I really, I really wish that you can get like these, you know, these middle American, quote unquote, real America people to Mm -hmm. leave the country. Um, oh, that's never going to happen. So I don't even no. want to focus on them. I want to focus on how we could be healed potentially by travel. But I don't know if that's possible. I don't. I don't. I don't know. I don't know if travel's healing us because you have to come back. Yeah, I think that that's 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 been the question. So I mean, the overarching thing I want to know is how do you in- how do you inject new things in your brain, new ways of seeing the world that gets you outside of this Trump slump. Like, because at the end of the day, you've got to figure out how to call your congressperson. You've got to figure out how to call your local rep. You got to, I mean, that is, I actually believe, 
and this is something I, I, of course, I sound a little paranoid when I say this, Chris, but I think at this fundamental juncture, it is completely changing the way that we get to interact with the world. And that's what's so crippling about it. Because you don't get to create anything new. You're always poised. We're on flight or flight, always. Fight or flight, mm-hmm. always. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, there's no creating in a space like that, right? There just isn't, practically. I mean, you're describing how I feel. I was hoping other people didn't feel that way, creative people. <laughs> I'm hoping, <laughs> I mean, I'm hoping I mean, creative people do don't we, feel that way. I know, for, for people who are sort of naturally creative writers, artists, maybe they're doing something, but what about all of us who count on sort of eking out creative spaces so that we can thrive and survive and do amazing things? even as we're trying to get on with the business of living. Like, how does one do this now? For me, it was initially travel. I thought travel might do that, but I don't know if it's going to do that anymore. And so the question is, what are what are other people, uh, to be honest, you know, listeners, what are your coping mechanisms now? Like, is anything taking you outside of yourself enough that fresh things are coming in? That'd be I'm interesting. Not- I would love to hear, our listeners don't really talk back to us so much, but I would love to hear what people are doing. Like we're identifying travel because yeah. that's what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the thing that we do for us, but I'm wondering what other people are doing. Cause like, uh, but I'll tell you though, Trisha, I mean, I've wanted to leave the country so many times. Like, honestly, I was planning to go to Rome next weekend, but now <laughs> I have different plans. Yeah, I was, I was going to go uh, uh, at the end of the month, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. One thing after another. And I didn't want to spend the money. And then, like I was like, I, it's now or never. And I wasn't prepared. So I was like, fuck it. But I want to leave the country so bad, but you know, it's the fact that I have to come back that makes me go, Oh, what's the point of me going anyway? Mm-hmm. You know, traveling during the Obama era was so different than traveling now because I, even in my, even in my decision to go to Rome, like I want to go to Rome at the end of the month, even that decision was born out of like a desperation of needing to escape instead mm. of needing to explore both, mm. yeah. both a different area and different space and the area within myself. Like it's, yeah. it's much more about escaping the current moment. So listeners, uh, you know, comment on this podcast, comment on Facebook, tweet back at us. Like, I'm very interested. What are you all doing to sort of avoid this Trump slump? Like, are you, you creative people? Are you creating stuff? Do you feel like your creativity has been blunted? Um, what's your deal? Let's, I want to leave that there. Cause I want to leave that an open question for people. What's your deal? How are you dealing with this nonsense right now? Um, Cause I want to steal it. I want yeah, to steal it because I'm not doing it. <laughs> and, and don't, please don't say drinking. Cause we're already doing that. <laughs> it's not working. You know what I mean? Like, not not really. <laughs> no, not at all. I wanted to talk about interracial friendships and relationships because again, it's not just so much the age of Trump because this is before Trump. This was the second half of Obama's presidency is that as a culture, we're waking up, we are seeing the man behind the curtain and that man's name is white supremacy. (laughs) And (laughs) we are calling him out more and more peeking behind that curtain, yanking that curtain, trying to pull it down. Trisha and I went to uh, predominantly white universities. Uh, We had a lot of white friends. We are those Negroes who move in a lot of white circles. And I just wanted to check in, like, 
if you find that to be more difficult, like, is that dif- more difficult now? Or maybe difficult is too much of a leading question. How have those relationships changed in the past couple of years? Have you noticed that they've changed in any way? I think my expectations are just higher of my white friends. Say more on that. Both my expectations are higher and then I've become more intolerant. <laughs> <laughs> intolerant or impatient or doesn't it matter? I don't have time. You know what? Because let's be honest. I think back in the, maybe prior to a, a certain period, maybe five, six years ago, I could say to myself that, you know what? I'm operating in a fairly privileged space where, you know, we have roofs of our heads. We don't have a lot of people who are accessing the criminal justice system. We don't have a lot of, um, we're not unemployed. We don't have some of the things that are sort of like um, real targets that you can point to and say that um, we have, we have, um, we're failing to succeed in this culture in many ways, right? We're mm-hmm. doing okay. Um and I, I could forgive other people for saying, okay, well, you know, you're unique and special and different. You know, you're you're this friend that I have or what have you. You know, those terms people use. Yeah. Um, you're different from the, other, from the others. Um, not that I ever tolerated that, but I understood where that could come from. Right? I can understand that out loud. But I feel like after so many images of um, police brutality, images of injustices and inequities sort of being unmasked, if I'm becoming more sensitive to it, how can, how can they avoid it? Right. How can you not see it? So that means Mm -hmm. I'm less patient about sort of baseline data (laughs) now. Mm -hmm. So when I'm having a conversation with you and I'm telling you that I'm having a certain kind of experience because I'm a black woman, I don't want to have to defend that. I want the question to the follow-up question to be really tell me about that. I don't mm-hmm. want the follow-up question to be, are you sure? Maybe it okay. was really this. Well, let me ask you this. When was that ever different for you? Um, I've known you for a long time. I mean, I think well, it's so funny that you would say that, right? Because maybe experientially you have seen me as someone who's um, more, has been sort of maybe confronted that and been maybe even been yes. somewhat combative about it. But internally, I haven't always felt that way, mm-hmm. you know, because part of it has just been my own sort of personality is I'm, I'm, I'm a sort of impatient person. I'm a somewhat guarded person anyway. So mm-hmm. I, 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 you know, you're my close friend and then you're my close friend. Right. So maybe that's actually what you were experiencing, not an actual mm-hmm. rejection of sort of overt ignorance on like racial levels. You might have just been keying in on a certain personality element that I have, which is I'm not necessarily that friendly. I'm not necessarily that open. Right? That sounds weird, right? <laughs> but <laughs> but um but if I were to name it now, I think that a good chunk of that is like I need to know I need to know that I, I have a sense of home here. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, you I've in lost spaces with other people in spaces with other people. And now mm. that definition of home has changed and evolved. Right. And in especially interracial spaces, home now means that you understand that your behavior and your choices can have a detrimental impact on me. Mm-hmm. Right. I didn't necessarily have that high level of expectation which is what in some ways probably allowed me to go into many spaces because many people are actually not that um, careful or that cautious 
<laughs> of us when we enter their spaces. So um, I've placed myself in situations that I think now I would never put myself in that situation. But I did it many times in the past. Yeah. Not really expecting my friends to do anything about it, but just I never expected it as... Um, it was never an expectation that I gave gave them, gave to them. But now I do because I'm saying, well, there's so many um, instances of things being sort of um, directly visible to you now. You have to know that if you do something dangerous or, you know, drive fast or do what have you and I'm in the car with you, it, the outcome for me might be different than it would be for you. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I mean, I'm very similar to you is that my patience my tolerance for white supremacy bullshit has dropped to zero. Yeah. I think it was at its all time high in college when oh, it was, yes. where it was at maybe like a 16 out of a hundred, but now <laughs> it's down to zero. Uh, and I call it people out. I actively pick myself up and exit spaces. Mm, that's great. Which makes everyone very like, whoa, whoa, what happened? What happened? That's not what I meant. And I don't engage. I just go, well, I'm not really in- – like, I, I know what you meant. Like, I think we both know what you meant. And I don't have to debate it. I'm, I'm not debating anything with you. Um, that's, that debate should be with yourself. Like, I have been in this position before, and I don't need to explain my reaction to you either. I'm sick and tired of talking to white people about race because white people created race. And their ignorance – or their their expressed ignorance about it is in itself a macroaggression. And I that's why I don't even bother to explain it. It's like, no, but why are you upset? It's like, I'm not going to play this game with you. Like, you have all the tools to detect why I'm upset. Anyway, I'm getting off my, I'm getting off my, uh, my initial question. It's like how these relationships have changed. Like one, I, like I'm really not here for bullshit. Um, which I have to say for some of my white friends has been really instructive and they have, they have changed themselves and changed their behavior. And even if it's just around me, I think that's great. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I love it because I put up with less bullshit, but I think that's, I think like you, I have, my tolerance is at an absolute minimum for bullshit. And you know, the interesting thing about that is that you and I are privileged in a certain way to be able to push back on the white people around us like that. Yeah. And I, I'm so aware that there are so many black people who are not able to push back on whiteness that way. Like I push back on whiteness in my personal spaces, in my professional spaces, like in my intimate spaces. And, and I have a privilege by dint of my economic status and my access to do that. But, you know, I, I think about, you know, when we think about interracial relationships and like our status and our mm-hmm. access like you think about how many uh, people of color, it's just not safe for them to be in those spaces or even be in interracial spaces right now. I'm just riffing, but that's what I'm thinking. Well, the other thing is, first, I I ascribe the change in me to sort of obviously contemporary challenges or contemporary problems. But I often wonder too, is it because I'm just older? Like mm-hmm. do have I lived with myself long enough now? Um, am I... at is this just what aging, is this just aging? Like you just are over it as just older people. <laughs> like yeah. been here a long time. This hasn't changed in 20, 30 years. It's never going to change. So I'm just going to approach it differently. Whereas, you know, maybe when I was in my twenties, everything felt new and I didn't know because I feel like our parents were like this. 
Wait, what do you mean? <laughs> I felt like my parents, I'm listen, I would have these intense discussions with a very um, old family friend. And now when I look back on it, all I can say was he was right. Like, and I was thinking to myself, is it because he just was older than me and he had lived and experienced life longer and knew that things weren't really going to shift? I was still on the sort of wide-eyed, oh no, if I just keep having this conversation, the same conversation, things will shift, we'll see each other very differently or any of that. So I, 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 there's also a part of me that just doesn't know if that's just experientially, I'm just different uh, because I'm because of aging. <laughs> Um, and I just, maybe because I possess myself better now, I'm, I just understand who I am now. And so when you understand yourself better, you interact in spaces just differently. Maybe I'm just also increasingly competent in my workspaces and also, I'm you're, owning myself you're more, more confident. It's both. Those yeah. things. It's the competency and the confidence. Right. You know, so that's also, but I mean, what about like intimate spaces? What do you, I mean, how do you, I've and right now, I often wonder if in this moment, like couples are having conflict about stuff, you know, I'm just curious, like when things come up daily or something that's so aggressive, because I find like the administration is so aggressively anti us that if you're in a pair and um, you're married or you're living together or you have kids together, like what the hell, how are you processing this stuff? Okay, let's put aside all the white people who are just fetishists, mm-hmm. okay? Because those people are, we know who they are. We know exactly why they're here and the whole thing. But w- once you um, get past that, you have to, like, the white person has to want to do the work. They have to want to do it. And if they don't want to do it, like, it's not going to work. And I think the wanting to do it is something that I can't understand, and I think that's the thing, like in an intimate space, like as a person of color, like that kind of work is just sort of like part and parcel of who I am. It's yeah. sort of like the white person. Sometimes I don't understand why you're here. This is a lot of work for you. All you have to do is close your eyes, click your heels together, and you can forget all about me and this whole thing and not have to worry about Black Lives Matter, not have to worry about why I always want to cross the street when I see cops. Like you don't have to worry about any of that. Like why are you here? But do you really believe that? Because I think I think one of the things that I think has been really valuable about this time is on one hand, you could say that that's just the part and parcel of being in intimate spaces with Black people, right? Mm-hmm. But I feel like in this moment, the demand is actually on white people to actually do this work all the time. It's the, it's, it's the part that they've, they've left on the table. So it's not so much that um, you are charged with doing this because you're romantically involved or you have a black friend or any of that stuff. This is part of being a human now. You've been, you've been dropping this ball for a long time. You have not been seeing the challenges for your neighbor. Well, you've not been seeing that, right? It sucks to be white. That's a lot of work. I don't know if it's a lot of work, but I, I don't, because I, I don't want to see it that way. I think work. it's just part of the work of living. Because isn't that in some sense what, let's take it on gender. Isn't that in some sense what um, a man, a woman who's dating a man would be like charging that man with understanding? Like, for example, if I, you know, if I come home and I'm telling you about something that's very gendered in the workspace, If you are my partner, you're going to have to try to get that, right? That's the work that's involved with being my husband. Because 
otherwise you're not going to get half of the stories I'm telling you, especially if they're see, gendered. But, see, but in, in your metaphor, you've retreated to an intimate space. You're saying that this work has to happen all the time. And I'm saying like, if we're going to stick with the gender thing, right, there's a lot of situations that men create and um, are attracted to where there are no women. So they don't have to worry about that. And that's but what I'm saying as far yeah. as like, as far as the race thing, yeah, an intimate space. Yeah, absolutely. Like, but what about you know, a workspace, Chris? I mean, in a workspace, what if you're employing women? Like, are you mm-hmm. are you aware of how you're entering and, and, and crafting that and shaping that space? Or do you not even think about it or care about it at all? Like, I mean, I think that's the thing is like in the intimate space, it's maybe deeper, but it's in every space, really. Have you just not been mindful of it at all? <laughs> you know, in some ways, I almost feel like that's been a lot of the pushback. Uh, yeah. of of the contemporary moment is the work that's involved. The work that's involved with recognizing that you and another person are different, that you can create toxicity in certain things that feel completely natural to you. But for another person, it's like they're worried about their safety. They're worried about um, their job security. They're worried about other things. Mm-hmm. But for you, you're just entering that space thinking nothing of it. But I mean, what if you're a boss and 70% of the people that are underneath you are women? Like, are you aware of what that might mean? And why should I, why should it default mostly just to the intimate space? You know? No, I hear what you're saying. Cause it's like the onus is, if you like in that case, if you want to be a business owner and, yeah. and, and have a, a workforce, yeah. you're going to have to do the work. So I see what you're saying. You're saying that it's now on white people, given this new situation that they have to just do the work. Like even with the friends, the people of color, they think they're quote unquote cool with, they have to do the work. But that doesn't negate what I'm saying, which is that these white people have to do a lot of the work in a lot less time than than people of color have had to figure it out. Why less time? Because because it, you'll be done. We're like, oh, oh, it's not working. And part of it is this. Yeah, like, I'm, I'm, do, do you think people now. have the that? Stakes high. The stakes are high. Like you yeah. said, like if you're working, if you're if you're in a um a workplace, right? You can't afford to be like sexually harassing and pissing off all the women. You've got to get it correct. Quickly. Yeah. Got to get it fast. And it's the same thing with people of color. Like, look, you and I just admitted that we give zero time for bullshit. And in our particular spheres, we're powerful, influential people, right? So people, white people approaching us have got to get it right, or we will shut down on them. So anyway, that's what I mean by it's not a lot of time. Like they've got, they got to get it right the first time. Like, I don't know the first time, but it, it's a lot of pressure. I think not undue pressure though. Like not undue pressure. I'm not no, saying like, that's oh, just life. I'm not saying just poor them, but I'm just saying like in this particular time, I don't know the stress on, on interracial relationships is, I mean, it's definitely there. Hey, you know what? Hey listeners. <laughs> I don't know why all this is like a conversation with listeners, but I guess because the stuff that we're talking about today is so self-reflective. Yeah. But I'm really curious what people are doing, like the conversations that people are having. We need a better talkback system on this podcast, I think. And and you can tweet at us too. Like, yeah. do all that. At Outrageous Pod. At Outrageous PCast. Okay. <laughs> so let's move on to media recommendations, which is something you've seen, heard, read, or experienced that you think other people should see, hear, read, or experience. What do you got? It was the miniseries When We Rise by um dustin lance black we finally sat down and watched it last weekend um and basically this is basically this is a miniseries that just chronicles the life of like um, personal and political struggles of like a group of lgbt activists um during um 
really mostly the AIDS crisis, but a little bit before then, actually, I think. Um, it also focused on like the women's rights movement and um, it took you all through me, possibly the 70s, the 80s, all the way up until marriage equality. Hmm. What I liked about it, I liked that um, there was a little bit of intersection, which I thought was really I- interesting. And I never really see us talk about it. Mm-hmm. And the intersection for me this time around was was around gender. There was a real conversation between the gay, the the um, the gay men and the gay women. Because one okay. part one part of the discussion was sort of when the AIDS crisis hit, mm-hmm. and um, and all the gay men were dying because it was mostly gay men. You know that was the other thing that people didn't think about wasn't lesbians. And so there had been this like big push to bring the men and the women together around equal rights initiatives in the city of San Francisco. It was a real focal point there. But then when mm-hmm. the AIDS crisis hit, this idea was, okay, well, some of the women were like, well, we can't give up some of the resources and the things we're working on that's in- directly impacting women, like, you know, childcare, da, 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 da. all those things kind of came to the fore. And they're like, we don't have any money to stop doing those things. And then this one woman was like, well, how are we going to help our brothers that are dying? Like, Mm-hmm. they need us like they need us to visit them in hospitals take care of them hospice i mean so that was like actually like a really interesting point of like discussion that i mean maybe i don't consume a lot of lgbt stuff but i think i feel like i do and i don't really ever get that like tension across often um so i thought that was really an interesting piece that was there and then they, you know they had black folks and then they also had trans and they had issues around like religion became a big um big conversational piece in it like you know if you're particularly a person of faith where do you go to worship so i it touched on a lot i thought that the first maybe um i think it was actually 8 hours i think the first two were the strongest i know right it's a mini series you know what's so funny you rolled your eyes at that, but there was a point in time in our history where we comfortably consumed miniseries. Remember that? I know. Remember? It, did. <laughs> it, did, yeah. it was long, though. I will say it did get long. And I felt like, you know, you could possibly watch the first two hours, see if it's something you're really into. And if you want to follow that that couple, the, the people's stories, because they took most of the people that you intro- you're introduced to in the first two series, they took them all the way practically to the end of their life. But it was it was it was really fascinating. I I I, I was more um, moved by it than I anticipated. It's gotten very high marks from everybody. Has uh, it? Okay, I reason, wasn't certain. Yeah, you know, the reason why I rolled my eyes is just that like the amount of TV, the amount of good TV that's available. I I can't keep up. Like I have to, now. I've had three <laughs> different coworkers ask me today, are you watching Dear White People? And I'm like, I know, oh, yeah, I, mean, I yeah. know. And they're like, the get down is coming back. I'm like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> There's a lot. And now you're but like, you- when we rise, like, I just, I don't have time. I don't have time. <gasps> well, okay, well, when yeah. we rise, I will. Uh, <laughs> Add it to the list. <laughs> I will quit my job. Get around to watching. So my recommendation is a lot more mundane than yours. So the blacklist starring James Spader and a couple of other people, whoever, is great. Like it's just, it's so well written. Like it's four seasons in, and I'm still interested in everything that's going on. You know, I mean, it's really talented. And the thing is, is that like in season four, shit is coming up that happened in season two, 
ends that were pulled in season two are being tied up in season four. But I'm always fascinated about like, did they know when they wrote it season two that they would do it? Like, did how did they know they were going to get two more seasons or were they just hoping? And it, it, I don't know what they're doing. I find the creative aspect of it very interesting, but the it's point the is the, the blacklist is very fantastic it is it's engrossing it's like a spy crime thriller cool but it's i mean if you're not watching it i would say start from the beginning and just watch it because it doesn't stop delivering ever it does not stop delivering and the twists and the turns and it's one of those shows where it's like you're like watching da 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 and then one of the main characters gets shot in the face and you're like um (laughs) that's the best you're like um but she's in the credits like in the opening (laughs) Do you know, isn't that, I mean, I think once they started doing that, that is such a clever way of making sure the audience never feels safe. Because yeah. I tell you, that is, that's a shorthand for you as an audience member. Like, oh, that person's in the credit. I don't have to worry about this. What? Now I'm worried about the scene, you know? <laughs> I don't want to give anything away, but there's this one, this one episode out of nowhere where a character's like, dum 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 dead. And you're like, What? <laughs> Now what do we do? Like I was like, is the show over? What happened? Like, like what? You can't you can't do that. But anyway, uh the blacklist. I highly recommend it. James Spader should get awards. I think he? he he has nonstop delivered in everything he's ever done. For a long you know? time. All the way back. All the way back. I mean, uh, my low key recommendation is Secretary starring James Spader. I love that. That's one of my favorite. And watch that's actually Maggie Gyllenhaal has never been more appealing. No, no. Ever since that, she became really smug. Great up trash since then, honestly. But also just kind of like that smug hipster actress type, which I you know I can't take. But that was so good. Check out Blacklist and then check out. Secretary, <laughs> your low key recommendation. My low key, I snuck it in there at the end. Um, <laughs> speaking of the end, my dear, mm-hmm. uh, that's it. I really enjoy this so, reflective uh, podcast. I really enjoy it too. You know what else I enjoy is that we, hopefully we can tape the next one together because I understand someone's coming to the East Coast. So oh, let's nice. try and make a recording date. Oh, that's a good idea. All right, my dear. Well, have a great night. Will do. Bye.